This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. When Gourmet Magazine closed in 2009, then-editor Ruth Reichel was shocked by the news, right along with the fans who had read the magazine for generations. Knowledge at Wharton recently spoke with Reichel about her new book, My Kitchen Life, 136 Recipes That Changed My Life, which chronicles how cooking helped her heal from the loss of the job she loved. I really did identify with the book just because I had been in publishing at the time and kind of felt that environment. And I was interested in your ten years at Gourmet. I mean, it was there was it was really a time where people got, were getting more and more interested in food and in being foodies. But then at the same time, publishing was in this horrible decline. And so I was wondering, I mean, what was it like to be there at that time and kind of go through both of those things simultaneously? Well, it was when I got there. I mean, they basically said, you know we really want you to change the magazine, um, but we want you to attract younger readers without losing the older readers. Had I been more experienced about magazines, I would have realized what a ridiculously hard thing that is to do. But they basically said you can do anything you want, and um, we had this mandate to change. And I truly believe that Cy Newhouse was one of the few people in publishing who trusts the audience. I mean, he really believed, I don't know if he does anymore, but he really believed that if you gave people a really high quality product, they would pay for it. Mm. And what I saw in the first few years that I was there, I mean, it was a joy. They let me um, hire the best writers, um, hire the best people to work with, um, really think out of the box. And it was incredible fun. And in the first few years that I was there, Condé Nast went from a company that was losing money to one that was incredibly profitable. Mm -hmm. So it was like riding this wave, and we won all these awards, and everything was great. Then the recession hit, and um, one of the things that really killed us is that um, Gourmet's advertising model was to rely on on luxury advertising, as opposed to many of our competitors who relied on packaged goods. Mm -hmm. Packaged goods do really well in a recession. Luxuries do not. And if you're a luxury company and your ad budget is cut, you know, if you're a travel company, for instance, are you going to cut travel and leisure or are you going to cut gourmet? If you're a car company, I mean, those are our our two biggest... uh, advertising categories were travel, automotive, uh, small appliances, beauty, and jewelry. And we weren't necessary to any of those people. And so we got caught in this kind of perfect storm. And it was really hard. You know, we went from you can do anything you want to now you have to think about how you cut costs. And one of the ways that um, both my publishers and I tried to think about how we would save the magazine was by expanding the brand. Um, So we did all kinds of publishing ventures. We did two huge gourmet cookbooks. We did a whole series of smaller books. We did uh, two TV shows. Um, In the last year, 
I was doing this show called Adventures with Ruth, mm -hmm. which was totally sponsored by American Airlines and was essentially um, an advertising deal. It was a way of bringing more money into the magazine. Uh, that for me personally, what was hard about that was the more I worked on all of these ancillary products, the less I had to do with the magazine. Mm -hmm. So all the things I liked best about my job, I wasn't doing anymore. And now, actually, when, so when the end came, you were actually about to go out on a book tour. I was for, on, I was on a book tour. For a gourmet cookbook. Yeah. And so suddenly you're out there and you're promoting something that essentially no longer exists, that has been taken away through no, I mean, not by you. And so, I mean, what, what did that do to your, I mean, to your process of kind of mourning what, what, what you had lost? I think it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I mean, I, they called me back from book tour, um, told us the magazine was over. It was um, real. For me, it came out of the blue. I mean, for the entire staff, it came out of the blue. And then they said, and now you have to go back out and continue promoting the gourmet cookbook, uh, which was very weird because it wasn't my book. Um, I wasn't getting any money for it. Mm -hmm. And um, it was like being in an endless revival meeting because everywhere I went, all people really wanted to talk about was how much they loved the magazine. And people would stand up as if they were in church and with tears running down their faces, start testifying about what the magazine meant from, for them, how they'd cooked their daughter's wedding out of it, you know, their grandmother had mm -hmm. loved the magazine. It was very emotional, and I did that for about six weeks. And now, so people are kind of going through their five stages of grief with you when you're on these book tours, so what did that do, I guess, to your process? I mean, I'm sure the other thing you got asked a lot was, what's next for you, and how did that crystallized for you? I mean, how did you go through that in the near term and then also just think about that? I mean, were you even in a position to think about that, really? I, I mean, almost all I was thinking about at that point was, I mean, because what everybody really kept asking me was, why did the magazine close? And people kept trying to, especially the press, kept trying to drag information out of mm -hmm. me. And I didn't know. And I kept trying, you know, I was just afraid I was going to say something I shouldn't say. So it was a very tense time, and it, I, I didn't even really think that much about the fact that the magazine was over. I mean, I didn't think about my own process. I wasn't into the grieving so much as I was just, please don't let me say the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just a constant, you know, being very vigilant and keeping a, a real rein on my tongue. Uh, it, it was really... Uh, it was really a hard process, you know, um, because I wanted to say, you know, I hate them, I hate them, I hate right. them. And instead, I had to be sort of grown up and just say, oh, no, you know, book. I really don't know why. Um, I wasn't privy to that. It's a privately held company. Yes, it's terrible. So I was managing everybody else's grief. Mm -hmm. And then I came home. And my first day home, my husband was away on assignment. My son was in college. And I woke up alone. And it really hit me. Oh my God, it's over. And that was for me when, I mean, it was like a wave of pain and anguish just rolled over me. And I really felt it for the first time. And now I read that the, the recipes in this book, it wasn't really meant 
to be a cookbook? Like you didn't set out saying, I'm going to make this year into a cookbook. So when you were going back and decided that it was going to be a cookbook and you went back and you looked at these recipes and you looked at the notes you had made, I mean, what did it put into a new perspective? I mean, what did you think when you were looking back over this year with a little bit of hindsight? I mean, what I thought, because I, I was six or seven months out before it even occurred to me, oh, maybe I should write a cookbook. Um, and what I went to were my tweets, because I hadn't kept a diary. I had kept notes in the kitchen when I made something I liked. I wrote the recipe down so I could replicate it. But um, going back to the tweets, I realized um, how bleak I, my life, I mean, I don't think I had ever allowed myself to really internalize it. I had sent out, you know, one kind of miserable tweet every day. But other than that, um, you sort of put one foot in front of the other and you march on and people say, how are you? And you go, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. And meanwhile, I realized um, that I'd been having these dreams about being homeless in the street. I mean, I really did think that. Scary. I mean, I thought I'm never gonna get another job. Uh, I'm 62 years old, who's going to hire me? Um, and, and on top of that um, was this layer of really feeling like a failure. I was given this fantastic opportunity to make the best Epicurean magazine mm -hmm. ever. And what did I do? I got my entire staff fired. Um, and, and I quickly went into this place of um, real self-loathing. And looking back at the tweets, I, it was like, for me, um, opening a vein. I, I realized what a bad place I had been in, which I didn't, I hadn't realized at the time. Well, it's funny because, I mean, so much, I mean, whether we want to or not, I think, but especially if we really love our jobs, I mean, so much of our identity is rolled up into our job. And for you, I mean, your job was food. It was cooking. So once you weren't doing food and cooking as a job, I mean, what did you learn when you went back and just did it to do it? Um, I mean, I think one of the messages really of this book is that how you get through this and, you know, cooking is my passion, but yours might be golf or opera or gardening. Um, that going to your passion is a way to get through this. And that the thing that you have to do, and I mean, that was what was so hard for me, really, was I'd been working since I was 16, and I had always identified myself by my job. Mm -hmm. I was a cook, I was a writer, I was a restaurant critic, I was a magazine editor. And suddenly I was a nothing. And to work myself out of feeling like my job defined me and that if I didn't have a job, it didn't mean I was nothing, was the most important thing. And um, it's, I think, really pernicious to think that you are your job. And what I found by doing this thing that I really loved, and I mean, oddly, although I had been in food all my life, I had not been cooking really for a very long time because I'd been too busy to do mm -hmm. serious cooking. And so by really throwing myself into the cooking and paying attention to how much pleasure it gave me, um, I rediscovered the point that for me, the secret to life is learning to take joy in everyday things and to really pay attention in the kitchen. But 
a bigger thing than that was that by going back into the kitchen and centering myself again, I realized that I wasn't my job, that I was me. And I sort of refound the person who was kind of always in there. You know, I mean, the thing about my job in particular was those Condé Nast editor jobs are princess jobs. I mean, you live a very big life. You, you know, you have drivers and you meet famous people and you travel first class and everybody's bowing down to you all the time. And, you know, to go from that just back to being an ordinary person who's traveling on the subway mm -hmm. and, you know, lining up with all the peons to, you know, get, get on the economy, you know, seat 32C on an airplane. Um, and realize that that just doesn't matter, you know, that all that other stuff is just gloss and that, um, you know, who you are is, you know, um, more important than thinking that because you're hobnobbing with famous people, you're really somebody. You're not. <laughs> Well, I know there was a quote, I think, that you gave in one of your interviews about how we just spend so much time in our lives kind of looking for the wonderful. Right. And we kind of forget to find the joy in the simple. And that was kind of what you found in the kitchen. And I wonder, I mean, for people that have been through this or going through a career transition, I mean, what do you think that, how do you think people can use that to kind of figure out what's next, whatever's next? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be a different job, a different career, but it, there's always something that comes after. Well, I mean, I think the first thing is... Um, you know, we do waste our time waiting for the wonderful. And, um, you know, there is always in life a lot of reasons to despair. You know, there are wars, there are, you know, there are people being enslaved, there are women being raped. I mean, there, there are terrible things going on all over the world. Um, and you need to remind yourself why you're glad to be alive. And for me, I found that in the kitchen. Um, and, you know, it was really, you know, the sound of water boiling and the aroma of onions caramelizing in butter and um, the feel of a knife, you know, cutting through an onion. I mean, th those are all things that give me pleasure. And I think the first thing you need to do is whatever it is that gives you pleasure, give yourself permission to just do those things for a while. Don't expect too much of yourself in the first few months. Allow yourself to just be for a little bit. And in the finding the reasons that you're happy to be alive, you also find yourself again. And I think you really need to do that. I think you need to center yourself and um, appreciate yourself uh, and appreciate your life. And then, you know, I mean, there's a moment in the book that is an important moment for me where I was offered a job by a famously hard-driving editor who runs a very unhappy shop. But it was the first job I'd been offered, and it was very tempting to take it, and we needed the money. And I, you know, said, let me think about it, and then I went out and bought a chicken and decided I was going to make the simplest sake steamed chicken 
um, which requires a certain amount of vigilance because there's one moment where it's perfect and you have to pay attention to that. And I went home and I, I, you know, I appreciated like the pearly beauty of the flesh of that chicken. And you know, I washed it very slowly and carefully. And then I put it in the steamer and I, um, I put sake around it. And um, I sort of sat down and I was breathing in that aroma. And it was sort of like being in a spa, you know, it was very quiet and meditative. And by the time that chicken came out, I knew I wasn't gonna take the job. And it wasn't, I knew that I couldn't come to the, I couldn't make a conscious decision, but that if I just allowed myself to be in the kitchen and appreciate this job, I would find the answer. And the answer was, of course not. I didn't wanna go in and be miserable. And um, in that moment, I trusted that a job would come and something else would come along and that I should not take something I knew I would hate. Mm -hmm. And now one of the things you also had said about the book is that it's really, so the book, the way the recipes are set up, it's not quite what you would see in every cookbook and that there's a lot of room in there to kind of improvise and figure it out basically. And I thought that was really interesting that you had said, I think in a couple of interviews, that part of the book is to, is to help people think it's okay to make mistakes, to kind of find your way well, I as mean, opposed to following step-by-steps. Well, to me, you know, there, we have come to think of cooking as a performative act, as a test, right? It's, it's all about the, what you end up with. Right. If it doesn't look like what it's, what it, the picture, then you did it wrong. Then you did it wrong, and you, you, know, you should throw it out and go out to eat. And to me, um, the cooking itself is the point of doing it. I mean, cooking is an adventure, and you learn something. I learn something every time I cook. I mean, I'm not a professional chef. So, you know, every time I'm in the kitchen, I learn something new. And, in, and I think that that's true of all of life. You know, it's like we spend too much time thinking about the result and not enough time in thinking about how we get there and enjoying the journey of getting there. And I think that's, you know, true of just about everything that we do. And, um, you know, I think that the idea that you need to do everything perfectly is daunting and keeps you from doing things. And, you know, really the secret to life is learning and to keep learning. And if you're learning, it means you don't know how to do it perfectly. And cooking is such a great example of that because, you know, really, if you come up with something that's not so great, there's another meal in a few hours. You know, it's, it's, it's truly not tragic. There's a pizza guy. There's, well, yes. Um, but, um, you know, I really wanted these recipes to be your recipes, not my recipes. And I wanted every recipe to be a story. I mean, the whole book has a narrative arc, but I wanted each recipe to have a narrative arc, too. And I wanted it to feel as if we're in the kitchen together cooking. And, you know, I'm pointing out, oh, okay, if that, if the... The pie, if you've made this crostata and it kind of starts falling apart, just patch it together. It'll be fine. You know, it probably will. If it's, if it's a really hot day, it's, it's going to be hard to work with. And I'm trying to make you feel as if um, you can just, you know, do whatever you want with these recipes. I mean, I think too many recipes are like lectures 
and I wanted it to be a conversation. Mm-hmm. And now you've mentioned the, that there is a narrative to the book, and I was really, I thought it was really interesting the way that Twitter really frames the narrative of the book. So as you said, that there's a tweet right before each recipe, and you really used, I thought it was really interesting the way you kind of, Twitter kind of became your test kitchen as you were doing this book, and I thought that was really interesting. Well, I, you know, I really didn't understand the real beauty of Twitter for me until the magazine closed, and the day that it closed, I got this outpouring of support from the Twitter community, and I suddenly realized, oh, there's a community of cooks out there who are my friends, even if I don't know them. And that first winter when we were living in an isolated um, house uh, in rural New York. It seemed like it it was blizzarding every day. It it was. It was the worst winter. It was just endless snow. And we would get snowed in and the electricity would go out. And and I had my Twitter community. And I didn't, even though there were days, days and days when we couldn't get out, um, I still felt like I had people I could talk to all over the world. And there was a day when I had some bananas and I said, you know, does anybody have any suggestions for uh, what to do with these bananas? And I got recipes for banana bread from all over the world. It was kind of fantastic. It's kind of amazing how many different recipes there are for that. Well, as I say in the book, it's kind of the kitchen sink of recipes. I mean, you can really put anything in it. You can put anything in it. Which is nice. Yeah. Now, just to get back to gourmet for a second, I was talking with actually my boss today, and he was saying, you know, he was a subscriber for a long time, saying, you know, there was really nothing like gourmet that he didn't always make every recipe from it, but he always read it from cover to cover because it didn't look like anything else and it didn't feel like anything else. Do you think, I mean, do you think it would be possible to launch something like gourmet in today's publishing environment? And if so, how would it look different? Um, Well, those are two big questions. Mm -hmm. And yes, of course it would be. I mean, I'm stunned that nobody has done a gourmet-like publication. Um, You know, what has happened is... And we've sort of seen the nichification mm-hmm. of um, all media. Uh, so, you know, there are wonderful publications out there, but they're, they're all divided for very small niches. Mm-hmm. And the mass publications have gotten um, lower and lower common denominator. Um, I mean, they're really um, done, you know, they're done by focus group with very little imagination. Um, they don't try and stretch any boundaries, which, um, you know, I mean, I truly believe that you make a great magazine, not by asking people what they want, but by giving them what they didn't know that they wanted. Mm-hmm. In today's, uh, you know, very food-obsessed world, there's definitely a place for a magazine like Gourmet that um, does give you politics and sociology and, you know, travel and food that really takes a big bite of the world and looks at the world food first, but takes a, you know, very broad uh, view. Um, And, you know, I'm kind of stunned by the way the current mass food publications look because, you know, in the years since Gourmet has closed, the way that we, all of us, look at food has changed dramatically, right? Everybody is now a food photographer. Mm -hmm. Everybody is walking around taking pictures of their food. That should be reflected in magazines. And yet magazines look exactly the same as they looked six, seven, eight years ago. I mean, they all could have been published when gourmet. I mean, 
why isn't it anybody thinking about you know how much this environment has changed? Um, you know, and I think there's so many interesting possibilities to do online um, if somebody would just use their imagination. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I we. We occasionally, this group of us from Gourmet gets together and thinks about doing a Kickstarter to do mm -hmm. one great food magazine. Maybe the December issue you never got to publish. Well, but it would be very different right. now because, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a moving target. I mean, you know, magazines have to change with the times. And, you know, what you could do now would be, um, it would be fantastic. It would be fun to do. But we're all too busy. You know, we all we get together, we get very enthusiastic, we say we're gonna do it, and then we all go back to the next thing, whatever yeah, came next. Right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been great. Well, really appreciate it's it. Been, it's been really fun for me, and it's a very different kind of interview than the ones I've been doing. Good, I'm glad. I guess one more fun question. I guess when you a tip for people out there, I know one of the things that I always wonder when I'm going into going to a new place, wherever it is, is how do I find the best place to eat? How do I find the best food? When you're, if you're dropped into the middle of nowhere and you don't know where you are and you don't know anything about it, how do you, how do you figure that out? How do you find that? Do you have Well, I'll tell you secret? what I did this morning. I flew into Philadelphia this morning and the, while I was still on the plane, I tweeted, where should I eat? And I got um, probably 60 answers from people and then I triangulated and I went online and looked at um, what, People had, you know, the menus of places that people had suggested, and um, the consensus were they were pretty clear. Mm -hmm. um, and I do that a lot. Um, you know, ask um, the Twitterverse where to eat. Um, you know, also, I, I mean, I am a food person, so in many places I know the right. people there, and so I'll just say, you know, to whoever. Uh, whatever food critic or cook or chef that I know there, and I'll just reach out to them and say, where do you think I should eat? But crowdsourcing. <laughs> but yes, exactly. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.